I'm Clarence Waldron. Welcome to Black Muse. Before we get started with tonight's guest, I want to send a special thank you to Howard Sandifer and his wife, Darlene Sandifer. They are the founders of the Chicago West Community Music Center on the West Side. This whole video podcast is their idea. They said, let's get up close and personal with our favorite newsmakers. Let's have lively conversations. So with that in mind, tonight's guest is Carl Davis II. His father was the late Carl Davis, the face of Brunswick Records. The music that he produced, The Shy Lights, Gene Chandler, Barbara Acklin, and so many more. Oh, I'm sorry, there's one more. Jackie Wilson's big comeback hit, Your Love is Lifting Me Higher, higher than I've ever been lifted before. So anyway, let's let me stop and let Carl take the show. What's up, Carl? How you doing, Clarence? Thanks for having me, man. It's Absolutely. not yes, indeed. So your father helped create the Chicago sound. Exactly what was the Chicago sound? Um, I think it was kind of in in comparison to uh, Barry Gordy and the Motown sound. It was when music was very instrumental. You know, my father loved uh, putting the entire comprehensive together, the, the horn sections, you know, the drum sections, the percussions, and then blending in, you know, perfect vocals. Uh, so the, the shy lights, you know, Gene Chandler, the Dells, Babyface, uh, Tyrone Davis, um, Soulful Strut, the Artistics, Barbara Acklin, uh, you name it, you know, Cassius Clay, Sam Cooke, you know, he produced all of them. Now, stop there. Cassius Clay, what was that about? That's the famous boxer known as Muhammad Ali later on. But what was going on back then? So it was during the time when I believe because Cassius Clay refused to go to Vietnam and fight, they had stripped him of his ability to earn a living by fighting. And so as a result of that, as you probably know in many movies, uh, Cassius was very close to Jim Brown and also to Sam Cooke. And Sam Cooke and my dad had a great working relationship. So Sam Cooke actually brought uh, Cassius Clay to my dad's studio. And uh, Muhammad Ali was basically trying to earn a living uh, through music and tried to sing. And you know, I've got pictures of, of my dad and Sam Cook and, and Cassius Clay in the studio and uh, let my father tell him, he was like, hey, with, with a lot of reverence, I said, don't quit your day job. Oh, yo. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Wow. Wow. Did that record ever come out? It probably never, never came out. No, no. He was, he, he was terrible. Ooh, we. Okay. <laughs> Now, your father also worked along with Curtis Mayfield, another Chicago guy. Uh, was that before he joined uh, Brunswick Records? Absolutely, yeah. My father and Curtis were, were really good friends. Uh, I think my dad even sent him through school. Uh, but he and Curtis had a great relationship. So I think they first met uh, at OK Records. 
And uh, that's when they started working together as a member on the, um, the A&R team. So my dad was a head of A&R and, um, and Curtis was a new man on the team to join in. And so oftentimes, if you look back to uh, uh, Major Lance, who was one of my dad's big artists, who did Monkey Time and who's also happens to be Keisha Lance Bottoms' father. So Keisha, the mayor of Atlanta, yes. that's, that's Major Lance's daughter. Yes. And uh, so for many, many, for many times he would go with Gus Redman and they would go down to the studio where my father was and they would bring him coffee and try to get a record deal. And they would bring my dad coffee and he was like, oh no, you know, he hadn't given him a shot. And then he finally gave him a shot and he found out, he says, you know, Major Lance is just not the strongest vocal person in the world. He wasn't a real good singer, but he had a lot of really good moves because Major was a, a prize fighter. So he was slim and could dance. And so my dad got the impressions with Curtis and the other impression. And wherever Major was weak in the vocals, they would fill in to do the lead. And wherever uh, Major was, was good, they did the background. And that's how uh, Monkey Time came to be. Wow. Okay. Cool. 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 Now, before he died, your father died in 2012, he wrote his life story. The man behind the music, the legendary Carl Davis. Um, what are you doing to help keep his legacy alive? You know, so a uh, good question. Uh, I'm doing quite a bit as far as, uh, so I, I finally did uh, try my hand in the music industry. Um, so, you know, Business has always been my first passion and first love. So when I was a little younger, uh, my, my, I opened up a record label and my dad was actually my vice president who sat and groomed me in the business and made me read this business of music, made me learn everything about royalties, made me learn everything about publishing, basically just you know gave me a, a tutorial in the music business. And uh, he told me one day, his son, he said, now, I tell you what, this music business will kill you. He says, if you, unless you really, really love it. And so I tried my hand at it at one point. I failed miserably. And uh, I said, Dad, you stick with the record business and I'll do, you know, corporate. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, okay. I just thanked him for educating me so that I was able to understand corporate and also be able to, at some point, help him uh, financially because I was more on the finance side through investment management, capital markets and advisory services to help him preserve the wealth that he and so many other black artists were beginning to obtain in the music industry. Got it. What kind of a father was he for you and your siblings? The best dad ever. Really? I did. My dad was my dad was the man. So he was a, my dad was the kind of guy who um, if you if you think about the all the attributes, if you think about all the accolades that he's accomplished, when you think about all the gold records, all the platinum records, um, you know, when you think about working with Cassius Clay and discovering Babyface and the Dells and Gene Chandler and Walter Jackson and Tyrone Davis and you know all these different groups, you know, the Young Hope Trio. And all the success that he's had, you know, you would think that if anyone had 
a, a right to be somewhat pompous or, or arrogant, it would be him. Um, but he was just the opposite. My father was very, very humble. He came from humble beginnings. He was poor. He, he became wealthy. And so therefore, you know, if, if, he, if he lost something, it, it didn't own him. He owned it. And so my dad was a big giver. My father has given away homes. He's given away cars to his artists. He's paid off homes and debts. Uh, my father loved young people. So in the neighborhood that we lived in, which is Pill Hill, my father became my football coach at St. Alby in grade school and coached the entire team. Um, when I went off my first year at High Park Academy, uh, he, was, he followed me there and became uh, the assistant football coach to the freshman team and bought the entire school, all new weight equipment, all brand new uniforms, brand new pads. He had an, an affiliation with Lansing Sporting Goods Store in Lansing and brought the entire school, all the football teams, all new equipment. So to, to, to the neighborhood, my dad was coach. He was Coach Davis. And so where a lot of young men didn't either have a strong male influence or didn't have a father, my father was, we had, we had to share our dad with the whole neighborhood because everyone called him dad, everyone called him coach. And that's the kind of father he was. Loved his kids. In fact, today, uh, uh, he's in Lincoln, in the, where they buried him was Lincoln Memorial Cemetery. And on the, on the mausoleum, it says, here lies Carl Davis Sr. who loved his children. And so, yeah, he was crazy about his kids. We spent great time. He, he taught me everything I knew about football. In fact, he had Gail Sayers come to the house one day to teach me how to carry the ball and how to run. Wow. Come on, y'all. Wow. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm just curious. Did he play albums at the house? Did he play music in, in the home? Clarence, there was music being played in our home from the time I can remember. So, you know, every time, so I, we had finally, we lived in, in Pill Hill for most of our years. And in 1977, uh, my father wanted to give us a better education. I was a freshman in high school at, at the High Park Academy and he moved to Flossmoor to give me a better education. And so I transferred to home with Flossmoor. And um, every day that I would come home, I would come home to the Shylights might be in the kitchen, the Dells or the Impressions would be in the family room, Babyface would be in the basement, Gene Chandler would be going over music. There was always music going on in our house. It was like Grand Central Station. There were always artists everywhere. I remember sitting on squirrels of the Shylights lap and Marshall, you know, watching them sing and trying to emulate their steps and, and and so I remember one funny thing is I, I, because of where I lived and where I grew up in Flossmoor, there are very few people that look like me, right? And so I began <laughs> listening to Genesis and, and, and Journey and all these different groups. And my father would come in my room and say, he would say, boy, he said, you better play the music that pays the bills in this house. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> exactly. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned Babyface. Tell me that that association, because people don't really know that he was involved in launching his career. Tell me about that. 
Yeah, so there was a group um, called Manchild, and they were out of Indianapolis before they ever became dis discovered. And so in a group called Manchild, Babyface, Reggie Bush, some of those guys were all a part of Manchild. And um, they had a couple of records that were pretty good on, uh, on the Brunswick record label, the Shy Sound record label. And so that's kind of where Babyface got his start. And then from there, he became the deal. And then from the deal, he went to becoming Babyface. But uh, it, some coin didn't say that my dad actually gave him the nickname Babyface. I don't know how accurate that is, but he had a baby face and my dad did call him that. But, uh, you know, I, I can't claim that he's actually the one that gave him the name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Are you in touch with uh, any of his friends, any of the people that he worked with, like Gene Chandler or Marshall Thompson of the Shy Lights? Uh, yes. So uh, as you probably know, most of the people during my dad's era are deceased. Yes. Um, but, um, but yes, in fact, I, I talked to Gus Redman on a weekly basis because I started Shy Sound Music Group, uh, a new record label. And it's, it's basically a takeoff of Shy Sound Records that my dad owned. And so I don't know if you knew, my, my, my father had a partner, um, uh, Dominic Vastola, and, and he was out of New Jersey and he was working with Brunswick as well. And so now my partner is Guy Daniels, who was the son of uh, Dominic Tommy Vastola, and also Gus Redman, uh, uh, my aunt Fanny McCullough, who does our publishing, my late uncle George, who was in our also was head of publishing. He was part of the Shy Sound Music Group before he passed a couple of years ago. Um, but yes, I talked to Gene Chandler. I talked to Marshall Thompson. Um, I talked to Neil Portnow, who was the the president and CEO of the Grammys for the past 17 years. Um, I just recently spoke to uh, Verdine Smith of Earth, Wind & Fire. In fact, at, at my corporate role, um, I'm the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's my job to, to bring in different talent and to make sure that we're exposing people to the accomplishments of people of color. And so this coming June will be Black Music Appreciation Month. And Verdine, Earth, Wind & Fire, basically, is going to do a panel on the evolution of music. And it'll probably be over a 1,000 people uh, that will tune in to this organization. Um, and last year for Black History Month, I brought in Keisha Lance Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, uh, because Keisha and I grew up together. You know, we were kids. Yeah. You know, in fact, yeah. oh, and before we moved to Pill Hill, my dad had a house built, and right next door was Major Lance's mom and Major Lance. So they lived next door to us for many years. So although Keisha's about eight years younger than me, I remember her running around and being kids. In fact, now that she's left being Chicago, she's now going to be a CNN analyst, and she's in Chicago every week for the next seven weeks, and we'll be doing uh, dinner sometime next week. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Now, let's go back. The Jackson Five, did they spend the night at your family house years ago, back in the 70s or something like that? So they were supposed to, Clarence. Uh, oh, uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the story is, <clears throat> is that my father came to me and my, and my older brother, Brian, who's deceased, and said, listen, the Jackson Five are coming in concert. They're going to be doing a concert at the amphitheater 
and uh, they're going to be staying with us for a couple of nights. But don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone that the Jackson 5 are going to be staying at our home. Okay, Dad, we won't tell anyone. So long story short, you know, my father, uh, my, my dad had a limousine, uh, and Felsey was his driver. And so Felsey, myself, and my older brother, Brian, went to Midway to pick them up from the airport to bring them to the house. Well, you know, long story short, we get to the airport and the plane has already landed on the Midway airstrip and we, the limo pulls up, but there's about 300 girls surrounding the airplane. And so now the Jackson 5 can't come out. And so they weren't able to come out of the plane. So we drive off. By the time we get home, there are another 300 girls surrounding our house. They were waiting for the Jackson 5. And my father said, I thought I told you all not to let anyone know the Jackson 5 were going to be staying with us for the weekend. So long story short, that was the plan. But they weren't able to accomplish it because my brother and my big mouth told the neighborhood that the Jackson 5 we're going to be staying with us. So they end up staying in a hotel. Oh, but we okay. did go to the concert and I got autographed pictures and uh, I've met Michael and, and all the Jacks. Right. Go back. Anyone else that you met growing up? Anyone else that, that you admired? Did you ever have a hero that you met and at your home or whatever? Any famous person? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, outside of all my dad's artists, yeah. you know, um, um, I knew Quincy Jones. Uh, Michael Jackson, um, Elton John, um, all of Earth, Wind & Fire, one of my favorite groups, the Isley Brothers, um, uh, Phil Collins. In fact, Phil Collins was my favorite because Genesis was my favorite group of all time. So, you know, my dad knew that. He said, <laughs> some, he said you, better, you better like the music that pays the bills. I'm like, but listen, I, I love Genesis. So Phil Collins was my favorite group. And so every time they were in Chicago, uh, my dad would talk to Tom Tom 84, who was my dad's arranger. And Tom Tom was very close with uh, Phil Collins. And so I would get backstage passes and I've got pictures with myself and Chester Thompson, who was his percussionist, uh, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, and all of Genesis. Uh, so yeah, I've met over, over the years, I've met you know all of them, Babyface, you name it, just being around the studio, I was a studio brat. I would come in and ruin the sessions and run up and down the halls and meet all the different people that would come in town. And, you know, I met, again, Cassius Clay. He came to the house a number of times. Gail Sayers, who taught me how to play football. So, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a privilege growing up as a, as a son of Carl Davis because there was very few people that I didn't have a chance to, to meet if I wanted to. You were blessed. You were blessed. You were blessed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Now, back in 1975, Carl Davis was, was indicted along with the president of Brunswick Records in a Paola scandal. Right. What was that about? Although, just for the record, Davis, Carl Davis was acquitted. Carl Davis was acquitted. Let's get that out there. But what was that case all about? So uh, my, my dad, even though my father was the face of Brunswick, understand that he didn't own Brunswick, right? He was a senior vice president and the head of all A&R and everything to do with uh, <clears throat> promoting all the acts, bringing in the acts, grooming all the acts, et cetera. So people associated my dad 
as the owner of Brunswick because basically he did everything, right? No one knew who Nat, Nat Turnipole was and no, no one knew who Paul Turnipole or some of the others that were actually the owners of Brunswick Records. Uh, so my, my dad was the face of Brunswick because they were all black artists, right? Um, so apparently they were selling, they were double dipping. They were taking the music they were being sold on the market and also selling them out of the trunk of cars and selling records on the black market, 45s, albums, et cetera, et cetera. So they indicted the whole Brunswick, all the executive about payola and also paying DJs to, to play our music on the radio. So between selling in the black market and, and paying DJs, uh, they brought in the entire executive team. Um, my father was acquitted in all, of all wrongful charges. However, <clears throat> when my dad was with Brunswick, he had a golden parachute contract. And of that, what that contract stated was that at the end of his career with Brunswick, he would walk away with $10 million since he brought so much, so much of that money to Brunswick in the first place. So his golden parachute was going to be $10 million when he retired to walk away, and he would be able to retire and live the life he wanted to live. Um, so fast forward, now that they acquitted my father, but convicted all the others within Brunswick, all, the IRS stepped in and took everything. And so the $10 million uh, golden parachute that was supposed to be my dad's was gone. And so now my father has put in all this time, all, these, all this music, and now I had nothing to show for it and had to start over from scratch. Uh, and that's how he and, and Tommy Vastola became good friends. And, uh, and they began to create shy sound music and begin to try to rebuild some of that. Of course, it never had the same success that Brunswick had over its time. Um, but if you only can imagine doing something for 30, 40 years, and then your golden parachute is now gone and you're starting from ground zero. Wow. So even the royalties, did, did, did he ever receive any royalties as a producer? So he still got producer royalties, oh. you know, but, but the, the 10 million that was his golden parachute that would have allowed him to be very comfortable to retire was gone. So now all you have are back royalties, assuming that people are playing your music or buying your music or performing your music and whatever new music he was creating, which is where then Babyface came in under Shy Sound. Uh, Gene Chandler had the hit Get Down, like kind of a disco get down. That did well. But they, they never were able to duplicate that same success. And a great deal of it was, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad was old school. He didn't like all the new rap and gangster rap that was on the scene in the 80s and 90s. And he didn't like all that profanity. And because my dad had eight kids and five of those kids were daughters, he didn't really care for women being butt naked on videos and, you know, washing each other with water holes and all that kind of stuff. So he was old school in that kind of thing and didn't really want to go down the route of gangster rap and rap and the exploitation of our black women. And as a result of that, um, comp compensation wise, I think he suffered from it. Wow. Okay.
let's talk about you now. You're a corporate senior vice president at a leading financial services firm here in town. It's one of the biggest in the country. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I work for a company called Mesero. Uh, and so Mesero is what had been predominantly a Jewish owned corporation. Uh, obviously the majority of people are not Jewish anymore, but a lot of the, the CEOs, uh, a lot of the senior leaders that are still in the firm, we still have a few Meseros in our organization still. Um, and uh, so it's about a, you know, we, we manage under assets around $200 billion. Uh, we're an 84 year old company. And, uh, and so I came in in the firm as a head of corporate recruitment. And it was my job to bring in people of all backgrounds and colors, et cetera, within financial services. So it's a, it's a firm that has about 17 different lines of business like private equity, equity management, direct real estate investment. Uh, so if you think about the, the Las Vegas Raiders, we bought, we built that facility that is their 300,000 square feet practice facility and their corporate headquarters. We own that and then leased it back to them. We, we do, we purchase real estate. Uh, we work with high net worth, uh, high net worth governments, high net worth people, et cetera, around wealth advisors, private equity, equity management, direct real estate, fixed income, uh, sales and institutional sales and trading, et cetera. And so um, within the last year and a half, we, with, with the onslaught of George Floyd being murdered, they realized that it was, we needed to do more than just you know, throw money at a couple of things and you know, donate some money and say, okay, you know, let's satisfy the black people. It was like, no, we really must do something to make an impact about making this a more equitable uh, organization. So they, they asked me to become the um, chief diversity officer. So I'm the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's my job to make certain that I'm bringing in people that look like me. And so since that time, you know, we had an intern program that typically was Lily White. You know, you would see 30 kids coming in the summer and you might have one Asian kid, maybe one black kid and, and 30 white kids. And uh, last year was the first year that 54% of the interns were all diverse. And uh, then I created a program that is, is called a rotational program. And what it's designed to do is to find people of color from all walks of life across all universities. And when they're in their, their junior, senior year, I have them come in and interview all the different lines of business managers. And we try to pick the top three that we believe can do a two-year rotation. So they'll spend six months, let's say, in our private equity, six months in equity management, six months in currency, you know, and then at, as the end, it's designed at the end of that two-year period, if they perform well, then we hire all three of them into the organization. And now this is our third year in doing it. And this year I'm not bringing in three, but I'm bringing in five. And so now when you walk around the, <clears throat> the corporate offices, you see black and you see brown and you see Asian and you see the, you know, uh, Asian Americans and uh, Latinos and, you know, I, I bring, I brought in Keisha to talk about, you know, what it's like to be a black woman in, uh, in a state of Georgia, in a Republican town. Uh, we're talking to Stacey Abrams to also come in and talk to us. Um, 
So a lot of those things I'm, I'm exposing a lot of people to, you know, uh, what it is to be black in, in corporate America and in finance, and especially there was, I think there might be 8% of minorities in finance period. And so if you look at finance being the largest equity uh, in, the, in the world, right? Above technology, above everything else, the largest generate revenue generator in the world is financial, right? It's the stock markets. And so I felt we want to get a bigger piece of that pie more than 8% and leaving 92% to everyone else that does not look like us. So now we are making a major impact now and we have initiatives and we created a, a, a council that works with me. And together we think about investing in black owned banks and black owned businesses that are doing business in the black community to make certain that it reflects the, the community that we work in, that we live in, that we have businesses in. So it's, it's been a, a, a great experience and they've given me free reign and, and an unlimited budget to do what I have to do. And uh, we've made a major impact in still doing so within the organization. Sound like a job well done. Sound like a job well done. Wow. Yeah. Well, hey, I've had a lot, a lot of help. I have yeah. a lot of help to help me do that. So yeah. without that support, it wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. Now, also, you are, you're a minister, I believe I read somewhere. So that is how, correct. How did that come about? That's interesting. So, um, oh gosh, probably back in 1987, uh, you know, I had always grown up Catholic and I went to uh, St. Alby Catholic schools, but I think uh, when God finally really got my attention, uh, when it went, there was a difference between religion and relationship and, uh, and, and God got a hold of my heart, got a hold of my mind in 1987 and, uh, and just began to transform me. In 1988, I began to live for him. So I, I met him in 87, but I still didn't have my life right. And <laughs> in, in 1988, I really began to live for the Lord and um, began to go to a couple of churches, just fell in love with all things God related, his word. Um, and so I began to do things in ministry. And uh, it wasn't long before my pastor said, we, we see the call on your life, man, or God. And we'd like to ordain you as a pastor. And so at the time I was married and my ex-wife and I both uh, were ordained as pastors. And then from then on, we've been pastors of at least three or four different churches. Um, uh, we are now divorced, but she still maintains her license in ministry. And she marries and marries. And, and I still do the same now. I just joined a new church, uh, some here in Chicago. Uh, I, I'm sure they're going to put me to work once they realize you know, what, what I've done, I've been kind of laying low to get a breather, you know, but I know at some point God's not going to let me hide for long. Uh, but yeah, in fact, I had a chance to lead my father to the Lord and also baptize him as well as my uncle George and uh, my daughters and so many of my, my, my older brother, so many of my family I've had a chance to, to witness to, minister to, baptize and lead them to a relationship uh, with, with Jesus. That's remarkable. Wow. All right. So anything else you would like to share? Anything else on your mind today that you want us to know about? Well, you know, I'm just going to keep on keep on the fight. I am trying to, to do some things in the music business. Uh, Shy Sound Music Group, 
my partners and I, we have a song out called Peace, A Long Time Coming. If you go on to Shy Tunes, which is C-H-I-T-U-N-E-S.com, uh, you'll see we have like a radio site and the song will be on there. We have several different mixes. Uh, we are working with some other artists to possibly bring on some things and, uh, and to kind of see what happens from there. But you know, my, my day job is still corporate, you know, corporate uh, finance. But hopefully one day, uh, if God sees to it that uh, it, over, it, it takes over, you know, then certainly I'm going to go in the direction that I feel led to go in. But uh, as of right now, you know, I just love, uh, I appreciate the fact that it's the privilege of being my father's son has opened up so many doors for me. Uh, my younger brother, Julio, is actually in the business like my dad as an artist. So he's a group called J. Davis Trio. Uh, you can look him up on YouTube. He's also part of a national group called Poi Dog Pondering, which is a national band. And he also had a new group called The, the Morning Doves. And all over YouTube, he's got music. So he followed my father's footsteps on the artist side. And I think I kind of followed him on the management and business side. So, you know, babe, everything that I've talked about today and all those accomplishments and accolades would not have been possible had it not been for my relationship with, uh, with God. That, that's where it all stems from. That's the foundation and everything else is built on top of that. Ooh. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. This has been really nice. Absolutely. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely.